Good morning, like has been said. Happy Valentine's Day, like has been said. If you're tuning in online or if you're here in person and you're thinking, wow, these people are weird. They sing weird songs. They use weird words like Lent and Smyrna. They uh, use weird words like kingdom. They do a series on weird books like Revelation. They look weird. Great, we know. Thank you for the observations. Also, if you're like, wow, this is so normal, well, welcome. You're right at home. We are continuing our Revelation series, and I just want to recap what we've done so far. A couple weeks ago, we opened our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, and we saw with John a vision of Jesus Christ himself, whose eyes were like flames of fire, whose hair was white as wool, and out of his mouth was a sword, and his feet were like bronze, right? And it was this picture, and we talked through the traits of Christ himself and what that means for us as his servants, as his followers, as citizens of the earth. And then we moved on, and that Son of God, that Jesus himself gave to John, who was seeing this vision, letters that he was supposed to write down and send to seven churches, all of which are located in what we would call modern-day Turkey. They would call Asia Minor at the time. And we read about the church in Ephesus. Now, we started this Lent series, uh, not this uh, Lent series, this Revelation for a few reasons. One of, them, one of those was because of Lent. And a lot of these letters, they follow this formula um, where the, the speaker, who is Christ, says, this is what I have for you. And he lists some things. And then it goes into this, this is what I have against you. And it very much is a corrective and Lent is a season in which we can be corrected. We can actually step our foot into the turbulent waters of criticism and be better because of it. Lent is also a bit of a time of mourning. It's a preparation for the cross. We're going to learn a lot more about Lent on Ash Wednesday. I encourage all of you to attend either in person or online. But we wanted to do this series and these letters to the overcomers of Revelation as this Lenten series, a path, a walkway with Christ to the cross. We also wanted to do a series on Revelation because a lot of you are like, hey, let's do a series on Revelation. It's a weird book. We're like, all right. <laughs> and we also wanted to do a series on Revelation because there was bubbling this idea, this question how did the church break so badly? Have any of you felt that in recent months, looking around? Now, it's amplified by the news, and that's a shame. But there's a real sense that historically, and maybe as real now as ever, the church has a lot of issues. And so this goes back to our first Lenten thing. How the church broke and how to fix it is the question that we wanted to ask. And we followed this um, we chose to do this Revelation series following our vision series with this in mind very intentionally. Do any of you remember our vision series? We have pretty high ambitions. And I'm very glad for it. And the worst thing that could happen is if we, with our high ambitions we find success in an unhealthy way. If we want to be a church that is multiplicative, that multiplies, that makes disciples, we better not make disciples who are cruel, who are wicked, who are ignorant and who are arrogant, right? Who uh, in Ephesus, right, are uh, committing idolatry and adultery with the gods of our cities as opposed to with the one true God. 
And so we want to ask, how did the church at large break and how can we fix it? But far more importantly, how are we a broken church? And again, we want to dip our feet into those murky and turbulent waters of criticism and ask, how can we be a healed and a healthy church? Because the pattern of these seven letters, again, is this is what I have for you. Yes. And this is what I have against you. Ooh. And we want to take that seriously. And so today we're going to find out what the problem is with the church. Excited? Yes! All of you at home, you can clap for that too. You can grab yourself a coffee and ignore it if you're too scared. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. It's going to be up on the screen, but I always like to have a Bible in hand. It's good to skim around, make sure that I'm not uh, posting something up on those slides that's inaccurate. Starting in verse 8. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's read it again. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say, you are, who say they are Jews and are not, but are instead a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all. By the second death. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. Did you notice the problem with my sermon already? Where's the pattern? He doesn't say anything wrong about Smyrna. They're perfect. So we're done. Good job, everybody. We're good to go. Let's go to Smyrna, actually, because I think we're still going to find some problems. Okay, can we see the map? Last week, Eric showed us this map of the seven churches in Revelation. And if you've got your binoculars, you can see on the southwest corner of the landmass, just northeast of Patmos, where John is writing from, is the city of Ephesus. Can you see that? Can't hear you at home. Can you see that? Just north is Smyrna. Smyrna, you can see, is in this beautiful harbor, or as they call in Scandinavia, where my people are from, a fjord. And Smyrna was established long, long, long ago, in about 1,000 B.C., and it continued as the city, as many port cities do, all the way through the Greeks until we get to the time of Jesus in Rome. It was famous for being where Homer, 
of the Odyssey and the Iliad was from, and thus had a reputation for its, um, its, its beauty and its literature and its intellect and its culture and all of these other things. There are two important details that we want to focus on. One, if we go to the next picture, is that, here's the city, quite gorgeous. We forget, I think, sometimes just how sophisticated and civilized older civilizations were. It's important to remember, actually, uh, just a quick aside, my children love a show called We Could Be Heroes, or it's a movie, rather. It's the sequel to Lava Girl and Shark Boy. So if you're a fan, check it out. Uh, but at the end, there's a quote, and the, uh, the bad guys who turn out to be not bad guys, it's a confusing story, say something like, every generation is better than the last. You heard this sentiment before? It's not true. Generations don't get better. We get different. Hopefully we learn from people who are before us. Civilizations long ago were great. They were intelligent, they were smart, they were sophisticated, they were civilized, and here was Smyrna. And they had philosophers, and they had poets, and they had culture, and a few of them, Philostratus, Apollonius of Tiana, Strabo, and Geography, which is not a typo, that was his name, all spoke of Smyrna, and they called it the crown, which is kind of an interesting name. And they called it the crown because there was a mountain in Smyrna that we're actually looking at this picture from. You can imagine there's a mountain behind us that we're standing on called Parga, or sorry, Pegasus. And Mount Pegasus was kind of the center of the city, and what we're looking at is the harbor portion of Smyrna, which actually wrapped all the way around this mountain, hence the crown, which will become relevant when we remember, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So that's one interesting detail. The other interesting detail is that Smyrna competed in the year 26 AD for the temple, kind of like we have Olympic competitions in modern era, they competed to be the host of the temple to Tiberius, that is Julius Caesar, that is son of Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome. Because right during the era of Jesus, right before his ministry, um, the, the, the kingdom, if you will, of Rome was undergoing a transition. And you've heard about this, you've read it a bunch, from a republic into an empire where Caesars took over as dictators, in our modern language, emperors in replacement of the Senate, which kind of transitioned to more of a parliamentary role under this rulership. And this is important um, for a number of reasons. One uh, is that it makes sense of a lot of what's going on in Jesus' time, this emperor worship especially. Not only was the emperor the emperor, but he was also the deity. You familiar with this? So not only did you have to serve and obey the laws and the orders of the emperor, it was required of you to worship the emperor, which is part of the confusion, right? This had for Christians who did not want to worship the emperor pretty severe consequences, right? There are social consequences. In Ephesus, should you participate in the feasts to the emperor and the other god? Nope. What happens if you don't go to Super Bowl parties? You've got no friends. Yeah. It's even worse, right? Back when, with the emperor worship. It had huge social consequences. It also had major economic consequences, 
in part, there was a thing called a temple tax, right? And so the Jews, if they wanted to worship, had to pay extra tax just to worship in their synagogues as opposed to Caesar. Now, this cost money and also brought up the question of if we pay this tax, are we worshiping Caesar and committing idolatry? This question was brought up to Jesus. We've talked about it fairly recently, right? Should our disciples pay the temple tax? Well, whose image is on it, Jesus says. And it had physical consequences. These ones are easier to see. They're written about far more often. Philip, one of the apostles of Jesus, one of his disciples, bore these physical consequences. Not in Smyrna, but in Hierapolis, if you go back to the map, it's not on the map, but if you go just east, you see where Sardis is, just go down that road and where it crosses paths, turns west to Ephesus, that's where Hierapolis is. Philip was doing the work of the Lord in Hierapolis under the rule of Domitian, who was at the time of this story, the emperor. And into Hierapolis, the only entrance to this gated community, if you will, was uh, a large gate. And to go through the gate, which was um, you know, covered in the art of Domitian and of the emperors and of these sorts of things, to step foot through the gate at all was to say with your feet that not only does the emperor have authority, but also that he is the Lord, even in the language of the Romans, the Son of God. And so what did Philip do? Instead of going, I don't think there were stairs, it was just a gate. Instead of going up them, he went around it, <clears throat> where the animals would go in. Because he refused, even in a weird, insignificant, symbolic manner, to acknowledge that in any way Caesar, Domitian, had authority or dominion or sovereignty over the world. And what happened to him was that he was killed. Different legends will tell you exactly how he was killed, either crucified or with a sword. But he lost his life for it. So Smyrna, you can go back to our lovely picture, is beautiful, it's cultured, it's lovely, it's got great beaches, great art, literature, philosophers, and to live a part of that culture, in many ways, is to acknowledge that Caesar, because this is exactly where his temple is, this city itself, a testament to his authority and his dominion and his sovereignty, is to blaspheme the Lord. And Philip, for being unwilling to do that, lost his life. There's another person who experienced these consequences, all of them, social consequences, economic consequences, physical consequences, and his person, or this person, uh, was named Saint Valentine. Anyone heard of him? Yeah, it's Valentine's Day. Give a kiss to someone you love, even a dog. Saint Valentine uh, is the patron saint of uh, young couples, especially relationships, romance, and uh, beekeepers. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I didn't know that until recently, but I'm in love with that fact. So keep that, go to the library, tell your friends. And St. Valentine lived in Rome, not Smyrna, in Rome, in the middle of the third century, so about 250 AD. 
And Emperor Claudius was the emperor of Rome, at least during a portion of his life. And Emperor Claudius was up to his neck in vandals. Not the kind who spray paint, but the actual demographic of people, right? The nation of the vandals. There were the vandals, there were the Goths, there were the Balkans. And in this era of Roman history, all of these nations and tribes from the north were coming and were causing ruckus and mayhem. Claudius was fighting them back and was doing it rather successfully, but was nearing the end of his line. And by line, I mean disposable soldiers. And so he created a rule. The rule was for this year or thereabouts, you are not allowed to get married in order to kind of rid young gentlemen of the temptation of marriage and family and life and settling down and convince them to join the army and join the war. For a lot of people it worked, but Valentine, who according to some sources was a bishop at the time, according to some sources was some other roles, said, wait a second, marriage is something that God established, that God ordained. Who is Claudius, just a lowly, rotten man, to say that we cannot marry? He's got no right to do that, and I'm not afraid of him. So, Valentine, or Valentinus, and uh, his buddy Marius started a secret underground wedding service. <laughs> Which is super fun until you remember that Claudius, the emperor, had just forbidden it, and so he got arrested and taken to court. And the story goes that he is brought before Claudius, because he's in Rome, remember, so he goes basically directly to the Supreme Court, to this judge, and Claudius says, are you doing this? And he's like, yeah. And Claudius uh, kind of berates into him, and Valentine starts telling him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Claudius pauses for a second, and remember, he has been told his entire life, or at least his entire uh, emperorship, that he is the son of God. That's the language they use about the emperors. He looks, according to legends at least, at Valentine, and he says, wait a second. Is Jesus the Son of God? And Valentinus is like, yeah. And for a moment, Emperor Claudius, according to the story, has a slightly softened heart. And he says, well, what's wrong with that? Why shouldn't one believe in Christ and be saved? At which his compatriots the guards who are with him, the judges who are with him, the jurors who are with him, say, what are you doing? Absolutely not. This man is blaspheming. And the softening <laughs> rock solids back up. And he throws Valentine in prison for blasphemy. Blasphemy against who, remember? Was it against Zeus? Or Apollos? No, it was against... Claudius, blasphemy against him, himself, blasphemy against the empire and the nation. They put Valentine in jail, and the story goes that while Valentine is in jail, one of the main co-conspirators of the imprisonment, a guy named Marcus, who is either a judge or a guard, was on duty overseeing the prison. He had just convinced Claudius not to listen to Valentinus, and yet now 
in the presence of Valentinus is constant prayers and songs and remembrances of the word of the Lord while he's imprisoned, he finally goes over to him and he says, Valentinus, you think your God is real. If your God is real, I've got a blind daughter. Ask your God to heal her and I'll do whatever you want if it happens. So Valentinus' heart starts pounding a little bit because he's excited. And he says, all right. And he prays that night that the Lord would heal this Roman guard's daughter. And Marcus runs in the next morning weeping, full of tears, full of emotions, because his blind daughter can now see. And he commits himself to the Lord with his whole household, which according to estimates of people in that role was probably 55-ish people, to follow Jesus Christ at risk of their life against the Roman Emperor Claudius. And then shortly thereafter, Valentine is beheaded. So today on Valentine's Day, <laughs> we remember the story of Valentine. And we remember the social and the economic and the physical, in fact, even his whole life, consequences that he experienced being faithful to the name and the witness of Jesus Christ, even to the emperor of Rome. The story of Valentinus, I think, helps us because he is a prime example, an individual who this letter to Smyrna is written to. This letter to Smyrna is written to the whole church, to the whole city. And sometimes when we think about persecution in mass, it's easy to miss the stories of celebration that happen within and the stories of tragedy that happen within. And so Valentinus helps us understand exactly why did Jesus give these words to John to share to the church in Smyrna, who every single day were facing social consequences, economic consequences, physical consequences of remaining faithful to Jesus. Can we go back to the passage? In fact, here we go. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Valentine, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say all of these things about you. But don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put you in prison. He'll test you. You'll suffer persecution. But be faithful even unto death and I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Now, Valentine lived about a hundred and, I don't know, 60-ish years after these words were written. And I want to imagine that as he was in prison, he heard them and he remembered them. And for him, that was important. So let's transition. What does that mean for us? It meant something for Valentine what do these words mean for us as a church? And going back to our initial question, what is the problem with us as a church? Well, this passage identifies some huge problems. The first one is this, being poor. Remember? These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. The church in Smyrna was poor. Not like humble, 
<laughs> this word doesn't mean something else. It's not symbolic. It means they were poor, which means they didn't have money, which means as they came out into the public sphere as Christians, people would stop buying their products. It means they had to pay extra taxes just to be who they were. It means buying property was extremely difficult. Who was going to, you know, if there was a two people, two offers for a home, it's almost like buying a home in Colorado Springs. The second problem was that they were being slandered, right? I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To be a Christian in Smyrna meant not only was Rome against you, but the Jews were against you. The Romans slandered you because you were a weird cult of people who didn't participate in our festivals who ate people's bodies, because they don't understand communion, right? Who drowned their children in water, what? You're a weird cult to the Romans and to the Jews, you're an abomination, right? You're an offense. And they slander you and they speak poorly of you. And it matters and it hurts and you feel it. That's the second problem. The third one is physical persecution. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer is only something you say to people who are about to suffer. And we've got to pause for a second and talk about what persecution is. And I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's a tricky thing. Um, persecution at its base is any sort of right, um, harm done to someone for racial or oftentimes religious in this case, religious beliefs, right? That's its most basic definition. It's just harm done on the basis of race or religion. That's persecution. In the modern discourse, you hear a lot about how the church in America is being persecuted. And you're probably thinking, well, Jed, you're about to say, but that's not true because you're not being slaughtered yet. And in a way, you're right. It's not quite true. We are not a persecuted church in America. We are free to worship openly. In fact, we can share our worship to everybody in the world online, and we're allowed to, and it's great. And I'm not going to go down the street and get beaten because of my profession of faith. When we compare ourselves to the world Valentinus lived in, we're not a persecuted church. When we compare ourselves to the world Smyrna lived in, we're not a persecuted church. When we compare ourselves to the Christians who are currently in Pakistan and in certain parts of India and in China or in some parts of West Africa or Ethiopia, we're not a persecuted church in America. And yet, when we start asking those sorts of questions, we play an unhealthy game because we're starting to judge each other based on whether or not we're persecuted or how badly we're being persecuted. And what I want us to do is stop playing the game of rightly identifying persecution, which can cause us to stumble into these two categories. One, of getting to play a victim card that we're really proud of, right? Does that make sense? I get to say that I'm persecuted, right? I, I get that victim card, I kind of one up. Or a pride card, even, right? Ha, <laughs> I'm finally persecuted. You know, all these weird games that we play. Get rid of that. Persecution's bad. Anything that's bad, any harm that's done to you on behalf of your faith is a form of persecution, mild or major. And we'll get to why we can live with that definition even as we prioritize the care for those who are being more forcefully persecuted. I want to redefine persecution from its basic definition, though, to this. Persecution is, at its core, not just actions that are done against Christians, 
but it's the tactic of the enemy to make you love the things of the world. Let me say that again. Persecution is the tactic of the enemy to make you love the things of the world. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid about what you are to suffer, what they are to do to you. In other words, the synagogue of Satan, the source of persecution itself, his objective is to slander, is to create poverty, so that in your poverty you think you need to gain worldly wealth, so that in your slander you think you need to gain worldly fame and approval, and so that in your suffering you think that the salvation of your body is more important than the salvation of your soul. Persecution is the tactic of the enemy to make you love the things of the world. And we see this actually throughout Scripture. The synagogue of Satan, mind you, is anybody who claims to be a follower of God, Jew or Christian or otherwise, and yet loves the things of the world more than God. That, I believe, is the synagogue of Satan. Who does Jesus call Satan most famously? Peter, his favorite apostle, maybe John. And when does he say it? Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem. He's told them that the Messiah must suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you don't have to die. What's Peter trying to do? Convince Jesus to love the things of the world more than follow God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan. Judas, Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus, its family said, famously said, Satan entered into him as he left that supper to go and betray his rabbi. And the other things that Judas is famous for, one, being a zealot. And as a zealot, he's interested in the overtaking of the actual real-world political environment that he's a part of, right? A worldly ambition. And he's the guy who stole money from the offering basket. Remember that? Judas, who loved money, and who loved worldly political power in his moment of greatest failure, it said, was filled with Satan in order to accomplish his task, which is born out of those desires of his heart. Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they sell their home in order to be generous, but they hide, they keep some of it to themselves, right? And then they lie about what they were given for their home and their generosity to the church. And Peter looks at Ananias and he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Satan, the synagogue of Satan, is those who claim to follow God. I am Judas Iscariot. I follow Jesus. I love money and I love political power. I am Peter. I love the body more than following Jesus to the cross. I am Ananias and Sapphira. I love money more than integrity before the Lord. That's the synagogue of Satan. And persecution is the tactic that Satan and those people who are corrupted by him use to try and convince Christians that they should love the world more than the Lord. Does that make sense? 
It's even strongly proven, I think, not proven, but it can be argued by Jesus himself in his longest, most significant encounter with Satan that we have recorded. Because at the beginning of his ministry, he goes out into the desert, led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You can put this up on the screen if you want to read along. To be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Our preeminent Lenten text. As we anticipate fasting together. And the tempter came to him and he said, the tempter, the accuser, Satan, the devil, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the tempter appealed to his desire for worldly things. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command the angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike foot against the stone. The temple, a very famously public location where people could see him being caught and protected by the divine himself. Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test as Satan appealed to Jesus' human desire for that worldly fame and approval. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. He said, all this I will give you. He said, if you will bow down and worship me. He said, Jesus, you can be the king of every city, of every nation. I'll give you every crown that every human here has if you bow down and you worship me. And Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Or in other words, he said, I will be faithful even to the point of death because the crown I want is the victor's crown that the Lord gives me. The threat against Jesus was not hunger in the desert. The problem Jesus was facing in the desert was not hunger. The problem that Jesus was facing in the desert was not slander or people thinking ill of him or him not being famous and well-liked enough, right? Did that matter to Jesus? No, in fact, he rejected the offer of it. The problem that Jesus was facing in the desert was not that he didn't have enough political power or authority within the world. The threat against Jesus that he was facing was whether or not he would choose the world over the Father. There's no corrective in the letter to Smyrna. This I have for you, this I have against you. There's no this I have against you. Because there's no corrective that we could employ in our lives of faithfulness to rid ourselves of the world's hatred. You know that. Jesus couldn't have told John to say to the people of Smyrna, hey, this is what's happening to you. Do this instead, and it won't happen to you. There's no corrective. The gospel is foolishness to the world. The cross is offensive 
the cost of discipleship is high. But the reward is the crown of life. And so we'll go back to the problems that Smyrna reveals about the church today. We've got, we're too poor. We're being slandered. Suffering persecution. Those are not the problems of the church in Smyrna. Those are not the problems of the church today. Those are the problems if you've got a worldly mind. If you're concerned with the things of this world more than the things of the Father. A worldly mind will read it and they'll say, Yeah, we don't need to be poor anymore because we're actually rich. Yeah, the Jews are the bad guys. Yeah, persecute the people who are persecuting us. But it's not the case. God offers no corrective. Any problems the church has in our world today will not be born out of poverty, poor reputation, or physical suffering. But instead, our problems are like the ones Jesus faced in the desert. The temptation amidst those things. The temptation that the synagogue of Satan, which is all of those in the world who claim to be for us, who are convincing us to move from God, to abandon our true faith in favor of Satan's riches. Here are our actual problems, and potentially we can imagine some solutions together. Whether we're facing real persecution in America or not, all of these takeaways, all of these problems exist regardless and will continue to exist. The first one is being afraid. One of the main problems with our church in America and less so in other parts of the world, but especially in America and the West, is that we are afraid. And to the church at Smyrna, Jesus himself says, do not be afraid. What are you afraid of? What are we afraid of as the church? Are we afraid we won't get to enjoy all of the privileges that we did before? Are we afraid of our bodies being hurt and the discomfort and pain that comes with it? Are we afraid of our neighbors not liking us when we reveal to them just how weird we actually are because we believe in this offensive thing called the cross? We believe that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. What are, what are we afraid of? For you as an individual, I can't give the answer. You can look inside, though, and you can try and find it. You can ask the Lord, why are you telling me not to be afraid? What am I hiding from? The second problem is this. We love the world. It's related to the first one. I'd rather have delicious bread than keep on fasting. Bread's so good. Let alone juicy steak, maybe some sushi. I love my house and how warm it is, and I would never want to get rid of it, even though Jesus himself had no home or place to lay his head. I love that I can be an influencer in my political environment, and I would argue that that's the best kind of political environment to be a part of, and if we can live in that type of society, we should strive for it. And yet I love it. Valentine was not an influencer in his political environment. Jesus, in the Roman political environment, not an influencer. Not from 
the structures that were established. I love to be popular. I love people to like me. I care too much about how I look because I think that my reputation should be built on superficial things. The list goes on and on and on and on. Do you love the world? The problem is that when you face genuine persecution, if you love the world, you might be tempted to abandon the faith. And the last problem is the problem of perseverance and just how hard it is. When the Bible uses the word long-suffering, it's not a joke. The way of the cross is desolate and is poor and is hard and is sometimes lonely. And the metrics that the world uses to measure success, money, fame, status, property, equity, influence are not things that the way of the cross is going to gain you. And the church in America is terrified. We love the world. And I think we have very little perseverance. And so I pray with all of you today that we would not exemplify those problems. The letter to the church in Smyrna does not say, this I have against you. But it says, these are the threats against you. And in it, it implies these very real temptations and issues and problems that we carry internally. And the Lord doesn't try and smother us with criticism for facing persecution. He says, I know you're suffering. Don't be afraid. I know you're suffering. Don't love the things of this world because they're passing away and my word lasts forever. Do not be afraid. Persevere until the end because if you do, I will give you the crown of life and all of it will be worth it. First John, same author of the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So let's be like Valentinus in the midst of our world. The church is not broken because of persecution. The church is broken because it wishes to retain the name of Christ, but also retain the benefits of the world. If we do that, we're just a synagogue of Satan. Sorry to say it. Let's be like Valentinus. Let's be like the church in Smyrna. Let's be like Jesus Christ himself. We're going to pray. We're going to pray three things. If I could invite the band back up. We're going to continue our prayers for the persecuted church because sharing and fellowship with their sufferings is what Christ would do. It's what we want to do as well. So we're going to pray that they might be safe. We'll put all three of these up right now because we've got only about five minutes. And I want you to work through these at your own pace. We'll sing a little bit. We'll just kind of play some instrumentation behind you. Pray that the Lord would protect the persecuted church. If you don't know where the church is persecuted or any individuals, that's okay. Ask the Spirit to kind of hear your prayers anyway. Or feel free to do some research. Look it up yourself. Pray that their faithfulness would bear fruit. Like with Marcus's blind daughter who resulted in his whole household coming to salvation. And pray that we would be more like the faithful churches of the persecuted world.
And I think we can do that with joy because we know that if we become like them, we're becoming like Christ. And the crown of life for those who've overcome belongs to us as well. Let's pray.